Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. All right, who else is in their proper seat this morning? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for another chance. We've had such a good time of praise and worship and a good time of fellowship. Now we turn to your word, Lord, the thing that you use to transform our lives by your spirit. Help us have fertile ground this morning, Lord, the things that we hear, but also put into, be put into practice. We ask in Christ's name, amen. In his book, Pinstripe Parables, there's a chapter called The Resignation that is given as a modern version of the chapter that we'll be studying this morning. It was so good, I'd like to read it to you as we begin chapter 15. As I read it, think of the life of King David that it is mirroring. He writes, Charles tilted back one last time in the brown leather chair and scanned the photographs on the wall. Beautiful women and smiling children greeted his gaze. Their moments together now frozen in time and framed in gold. Few voters cared that he had been married three times. Blended families had never been easy, but Charles' family was blended and neglected, left like a meandering stream to find its own course. While he tried to guide the country, his offspring from three mothers had passed childhood and were swept into the turbulence of adolescence. There had always been too much work and too many people depending on Charles too many decisions in a world threatening to unravel every day. The kids will be all right, he told himself, but they weren't. All that had brought him to this morning. Today he was stepping down in defeat from the highest office in the land. It would have been different if Congress would have wanted him out, if they had charged him with misconduct or called for his impeachment. He had enough skeletons in his closet to undo him if his peers chose to drag one out. But overconfident and unaware, Charles had been defeated by his own son, and that's what made this bitter pill even harder to swallow. Charles rose and walked to the photograph of the handsome young man standing by the white Corvette convertible. Charles had given him the car as a graduation present. Justin, Justin, Charles whispered, first in your class, first with the ladies, and first in your father's heart. Charles' mind wandered back a decade to the afternoon that Curtis, a son from a previous marriage, had raped Tina, Justin's teenage sister. Charles had been livid, but neither meted out discipline nor love, and because of that, over time, Justin changed his view of his father from incompetent to indifferent, and therefore determined he would solve the matter on his own. I should have done something, Charles told himself. 
Maybe Justin was right. If a man can't manage his family, how can he possibly govern a nation? Through a skillful grassroots public relations campaign, Justin engineered Charles' political downfall. A voice brought Charles back to the present. Sir, it's time to go. The president took a deep breath and followed his aide out the door and down the walk littered with his faithful staff. A smattering of applause followed Charles as he grasped hands and smiled woodenly at tear-filled eyes. Keep moving, he told himself. Keep smiling. Who could have imagined it would ever end like this? Look at verse 1 with me. After this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and fifty men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate, so it was, whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision, that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such, a, such and such a tribe of Israel. This isn't a very long period in David's life, but the Bible takes eight chapters, from chapters 13 to chapter 20, to cover these events. Some of it seems almost like slow motion compared to the rest of the book. But the writer lingers on them because of all the important lessons that we can learn from it. A demagogue is defined as a political leader who seeks support by appealing to popular desires and prejudices rather than by using rational judgment. Newspaper editor H.L. Mencken's definition of a demagogue is rather extreme, but he gets the point across. He says, a demagogue who's one who preaches doctrines he knows to be untrue to people that he knows to be idiots. And if ever a man was equipped to be a demagogue and lead people astray, that man was Absalom. He was a handsome man whose charms were difficult to resist. With great skill, the egotistical prince used every device at his disposal to mesmerize the people and win their support. Now David had won the hearts of people through sacrifice and service. But Absalom did it the easy way and the modern way, by manufacturing an image of himself that the people couldn't resist. David was a hero, while Absalom was only a celebrity. The reinstated prince took steps to develop his image. We read in verse 1 that after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. None of this had any practical purpose except to make Absalom look important. In particular, chariots were of very little use in, around the mountainous terrains in Jerusalem. But in the streets of Jerusalem, the young prince must have made a grand impression as he paraded with his escort of 50 men running ahead of him. You can almost imagine his beautiful mane of hair blowing in the breeze. It is interesting that Samuel had warned the people of Israel many years previously about the dangers of having a king just like all of the other nations. He had emphasized that a king would have chariots and horsemen to run before his chariots. Allow me to read it to you. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord of the people who had asked of him a king. He said, This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. 
And so we see that Absalom's introduction of a chariot to the streets of Jerusalem was worse than pompous and pretentious. He had begun to display an alternative kind of power and greatness. Here we see the beginning of Absalom's rebellion. Jesus told the Jewish leaders of his day, I have come in my father's name, and you have not received me. But if another comes in his own name, him you will receive. That is exactly what is happening here. We recognize in Absalom street parades what we might call the politics of pomp. Jesus warned against those who love drawing attention to themselves by ostentatious clothing and conspicuous displays of elegance. Those who want to be great, though, still play this game. Things like power dressing and other attempts to look great are all part of the pursuit of worldly greatness. But Jesus introduced a radically different understanding of greatness. I'm among you as one who serves, he said. And so greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by the greatness of the king. Therefore, the kingdom of God belongs of the kingdom of God belongs not to those who seek power, fame, and fortune, but to those who are in their childlike powerlessness and dependence mirror that of their king. Now, do we believe that? We need to understand that the pursuit of worldly greatness is profoundly inconsistent with faith in Christ. Such ambitions, like Absalom, represent an alternative to the way of Christ. And that is not a lesson that is easily learned. And sadly, the cult of celebrity has not been abolished from many Christian churches. Verse 2 says that Absalom would get up early to go stand by the city gate. The city gate was a city hall of ancient cities, and he knew that there would be many disgruntled people there wondering why the court system wasn't functioning more efficiently. The gate of the city is where legal transactions took place and where counsel was given. Absalom would greet these visitors like old friends and would ask them, What city are you from? Now he's scouting and reconnoitering the land. This way he can send them back to their towns knowing he's got someone there now to talk him up to the general populace. Look at verse 3. And Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give them justice. Absalom was not only a consummate liar, but he was a patient man who was able to discern just the right hour to act. He had waited around five years before openly rebelling against his father and seizing the throne. In verse 3, he agreed with them that all their complaints were right. And they should be settled in their favor by the king's court. It was gross flattery of the most despicable kind, but the people loved it. But wait a minute. How does he know that their claims are good and right? He's not even heard the claims and he certainly hasn't heard the other side of the story. Proverbs says that one man presents his case and it seems right until another one comes and examines him. This is called getting you to indulge in commerce, and that which is used to induce you is called a commercial. Absalom is a living commercial, and they, brought, they bought it hook 
line, and sinker. And I ask you, is there any sure way for a powerful person to get support of people than by giving the impression that he is on their side? The brief sketch we are given suggests that Absalom didn't even bother hearing what the other claims were before declaring them good and right. He adopted the pose of an all-knowing superior who could tell just by meeting a person that he or she was in the right. Absalom did not tell anyone that they were in the wrong. Absalom would have been popular today because he was so tolerant. But the problem with tolerance in areas of absolute truth is somebody has to be wrong. Both parties cannot be right concerning opposing issues of truth. Absalom began his revolution by sitting at the city gate and saying, I sympathize with you. I wish I could help you. The king is obviously too busy. Now, if I were king, I would take care of your concern. To put it into modern vernacular, he was saying, David is just too busy to have time for the common man. He won't answer his phone, and he's blocked you on Facebook. But me, I've got my finger on the pulse of the nation. I'm a man of the people just like you. Well, except I have better hair. And so Absalom spent his days shaking hands and kissing babies. Every time he meets someone, it's just another chance for a photo op. He says, if only I were judge, I'd make sure that everyone would receive justice. Absalom boasted that he would handle kingdom matters better if only he were the judge, which was a subtle way of criticizing his father. We may again be struck by how familiar such political tactics are to us even this morning. Those aspiring to positions of power rarely acknowledge that those currently in power are doing a good job, even when they are. Creating and feeding discontent with those who stand in the way of your ambitions is a common political ploy. The thing with leadership is you are often a lightning rod for criticism. In the comic strip The Far Side, there is one where you see these two deer standing in the forest, and one has a bullseye on his side, and the other deer says, that's a bummer of a birthmark, Ralph. But there is a sense in which leaders seem to have a target painted on their back. We need to understand there where it says that I would give them justice does not quite mean what it sounds like in the English. The sense of it is, I would declare in their favor. What a promise. Every plaintiff would get the decision that he or she wanted. Now the impossibility of all judicial decisions being favorable to everyone did not constrain Absalom in the least. But the remarkable thing about Absalom-style politics is that it works. The downside of that is that it's going to lead to a civil war. That's a funny phrase, isn't it? Civil war. Those words don't go together, like act naturally or family vacation or, in my case, the great outdoors. Thank you, Mitch. Why did David think about Absalom's exhibitions of royal magnificence? We are not told, but it will become clear that he didn't do anything about it. 
Now, ironically, last week, we heard how the woman from Tekoa had flattered David by saying that he had the wisdom to know all things that were going on in the land. But we can reasonably wonder whether he had any idea of the threat that was beginning to emerge under his very nose. Whenever I go on vacation, I sometimes tell whoever is taking my place behind the pulpit not to Absalom me. I can almost hear them. With a great sigh, they would lament to you. If only I were a pastor, I wouldn't tell stupid jokes and we'd have ice cream every Sunday. <laughs> and that's what Absalom is doing. If only I were the king. Now, please pray for me. But every time I read those words, I hear them coming out of the cowardly line in the Wizard of Oz in his If Only I Were the King song. I'll sing it for you if you take me to lunch sometime. Verse 5. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Can you just see him in your mind's eye? Before anyone had a chance to bow down before him, he would lift them up and kiss him. What he was saying without saying a word was, hey, look, I'm no king cloistered in an ivory tower. I'm an average Joe just like you. And this seemingly small gesture was actually a ploy to cause a rift in the kingdom of David. I urge you, brethren, Paul would write to the church at Rome, to avoid those who cause divisions and offenses. Absalom is the quintessential example of one who should have been avoided. Now Jude also nailed this kind of behavior when he wrote in Jude 16, These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Isn't that exactly what Absalom is doing? He is flattering people for the sake of an advantage. One old commentator said, A flatterer is a beast, I'm sorry, a flatterer is said to be a beast that biteth smiling. For as a wolf resembles a dog, so doth a flatterer a friend. Quite simply, flattery is something that we say to someone's face that we would never say behind their back. While gossip is something we would say behind someone's back that we would never say to their face. And both those things can be deadly. The end of verse 6 tells us that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom worked on all of Israel with his strategy to arouse the affection and the support of the people. You are bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, the men of Israel said to David back in chapter 5 begging him to become their king. But now they reject David's leadership and side with this one who has stolen their hearts. To steal is to take something that doesn't belong to you. When a man takes something that he does not deserve or that he has not labored for, that is called stealing. These are David's people and Absalom stole them. Look at verse 7 with me. Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. 
For your servant took a vow while dwelt in Jeshur and Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. In verse 7, the 40 years is either referring to the 40 years that David had reigned, or it could be a scribal error. So now Absalom is lying, and he is using the Lord as an excuse. If there is anything worse than a lie, it is a religious lie. But his request may have thrilled the heart of David. Perhaps David was even hoping that Absalom is finally showing some kind of real spiritual interest. The Hebrew could be literally translated, serve the Lord. However, it was a lie. Absalom had no intention of being a servant to anybody. Now, in the earlier conversation with David about the feast, David had been cautious and even a little bit suspicious, but not so now. The king said to him, go in peace. The bitter irony is palpable. Telling him to go in peace instead opened the way for Absalom to go to war. Do you know the even sadder part? These would be the very last words that David would ever speak to his son Absalom. Look at verse 10 with me. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Why did Absalom set up his kingdom in Hebron? Well, Hebron was his hometown, but more importantly, Hebron had been the capital city of Israel before David moved it to Jerusalem. And when David moved the capital to Jerusalem, the men of Hebron were likely upset. And so Absalom capitalizes on their dissatisfaction with David. So being the crown prince, he invites these 200 men to go down with him to supposedly fulfill this religious vow. But these men have absolutely no idea that they are just being used to begin the revolt against David. This way, when the coup begins, it would look like to everyone in the land that Absalom has the support and backing of these 200 men in respect to the revolution. This would have given added weight to the rebellion that he would never have had otherwise. Now we see him working all the angles on this thing. Verse 12. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, from Giloth, where he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people of Absalom continually increased in number. Maybe Absalom's master stroke was to win the support of Ahithophel, who was David's wisest and most trusted counselor. And so when the guests saw Ahithophel at the feast, they probably felt that everything was going well. But Ahithophel did more than just attend the celebration. He also joined Absalom in revolting against King David. And we know that David greatly valued Ahithophel's wise counsel. Why then did Absalom think Ahithophel would transfer allegiance and defect his cause away from King David? I suggest the reason may be that Ahithophel 
was Bathsheba's grandfather. No doubt Ahithophel was aware of the fact that David had done injustice to his family by having Bathsheba's husband killed. And the baby that died was Ahithophel's great-grandson. If that was in fact the case, Absalom could have exploited this weakness for his own purposes. I think Ahithophel had just been harboring bitterness in his heart for this whole time. I point this out to show you the danger of allowing bitterness to take root in your heart. It will lead to your destruction. Bitterness has a shelf life of a Twinkie. Ahithophel obviously never dealt with this matter of David. So he defected from David, and we'll see him siding with Absalom and ultimately dying, so upset was he by the situation. And so even though Ahithophel is known for his great wisdom, we're going to see that he will eventually commit suicide. This is the danger of bitterness. Please don't think I'm able to control my bitterness in my thought life and nothing else. The problem with that kind of thinking is one day you may wake up and you won't be able to do that. And the devil can use that to, to spoil your legacy of a lifetime of work. Verse 13, please. Now a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly, and bring disaster upon us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. And the king went out with all his household after him. But the king left ten women, concubines, to keep the house. For the second time in his life, David is forced to flee into the wilderness to save his life. As a young man, he fled from the jealous rage of King Saul. And now he was seeking refuge from the hypocritical deceptions of his son Absalom and his former counselor Ahithophel. David's fleeing from Jerusalem was enormously significant. What would become of him? What would become of his kingdom? It appeared that all was lost. It is believed that about this time, David prayed a prayer that made it into the book of Psalms. The superscription of Psalm 3 says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. You can almost imagine the words coming out of the mouth of David. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying to my soul, there is no salvation of God for him. Maybe you're wondering, well, why didn't David fight? I think he knew that Absalom was ruthless enough to kill as many people as he would have to in order to become the king. And David did not want to be responsible for any more innocent blood. When Osama bin Laden was found, he grabbed a woman and put her in front of him so he wouldn't shoot him. But David was a true leader who wouldn't use the innocent as a shield. As we close, 
I want us to try to understand the shock this must have been to David's system. Maybe David's son Solomon thought of this day when he wrote in Proverbs 27.1, Don't boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day will bring forth. David woke up that morning as the king of Israel, but by the afternoon he is running for his very life as an exile. This happens even after all the things that David had done for those people. He alone had the courage to stand up to a Goliath. He alone had the integrity to spare Saul's life again and again. It was he alone they sang about that Saul had slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. He alone was responsible for bringing the ark back to Israel and has defeated Israel's enemies in all directions and has given the nation a time of peace and prosperity. All that is forgotten because the other guy has great hair. Can anyone say fickle? That's how crowds are, my friends. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul in Acts 28. If you remember the story, he has just survived a shipwreck and was now gathering firewood when a viper bit him on the hand. Listen to how the natives reacted. It says, when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he took the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Can you believe that? They were like, well, we knew he was either a murderer or a god. We just wasn't sure. That's how vacillating a crowd can be, which is a real good reason not to worry about what the world thinks about us as long as we are living according to the standards of God's word. In verse 16, David leads some of the women there to water the plants and feed the fish, perhaps hoping that one day he might return. Well, Pastor John is preaching next week, so we'll pick up David's exile the following week, and I urge you to read ahead. And Father, we don't know what is before us, even this day, even ten minutes from now. So I pray, Lord, that we would walk according to your spirit, Father. I pray, Father, that the lessons we learned about having bitterness in our hearts, that uh, you would just, just expunge that from us if there is anything. And Lord, help us to walk in your ways. Your ways are the best way to walk, Lord. And even with David, who did the right things, he is still having to suffer the consequences of his sins. I pray, Father, we would remember that, that uh, everything that we do has a consequence. I pray that would just drive us to live holy lives. We ask in Christ's name, amen.